Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, along with science advisor Matt Moniz. And we are here to talk about the paranormal. Oh, hey, what's going on there? Just enable the skill on the Alexa app. Welcome to 1420 WBSA. Or just ask the kid for help. Yeah. You don't need to talk to us during the opening of the show there. Should we get Keith to come back in? No, that was totally me. I forgot to just click that uh, one off. That's all right. We'll leave it in here. Okay. That's, uh, we won't even fix that in post. We'll just leave it as is. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, as I said, we are here to talk about the paranormal. A little bit later on, we're going to be joined by our friend Christy Parrish. You know her as the person who has been handling the investigations and the um, renovations and everything that's been happening at the Oliver Estate in Middleborough, Massachusetts. It's been going on now for a number of years where they've been taking the money that they've made from investigations and some other events that they've done and put it toward uh, trying to restore the the building itself and the property. And they've done a fantastic job. Well, Christy has a, an announcement to make. Well, she already made it, but she's going to join us a little bit later on. And we're going to talk about some new projects that are coming up where they're hoping to have a similar uh, effect on some other historic properties as they did on the Oliver Estate. So we're going to find out all about that. We'll also find out about some stuff that's been going on at the Oliver Estate because it's been very active lately. Uh, there were uh, some videos that Christy posted the last couple of days, and then uh, I had been there at uh, the beginning of January. I think that's when it was. And we did, we, you know, we had some pretty good stuff going on while we were there, but then the next morning, on the security camera footage, she captured the wooden bar that goes across the the basement door just kind of popping off on its own and then some voices after it. That was just, you know, the beginning of what's been going on. So we'll get all of that updated from her. Uh, we'll also take your calls, 508-996-0500. That's the number to call in and discuss anything that's on your mind from the paranormal perspective. Uh, one of the things that we can talk about for sure is, you know, these paranormal awards uh, I saw those going around again, that uh, there's and there's different groups and sites and organizations and, and uh, different uh, versions of these that are out there. And as much as I've been hardcore against them for so long, like I'm starting to come of, of the mindset of, oh, who, like, who cares, really? Mm. I mean, people are going to people are going to do what they want to do. And uh, if they. The one thing that I don't like are the ones, we can get into this a little bit later on, but the ones that I don't like are the ones that just unilaterally choose who to give these awards to. The ones that have a nomination process where they open it up and you can nominate yourself or nominate somebody else and then they'll put it to a vote and then, you know, the, the social right. media crowd votes on it. You know, those those I can understand are a little bit more similar to how you would give out actual real awards. So those I don't get too upset about. Um, the problem with that is, you know, if people come back and say, well, how come I've never been nominated for that award? Well, you or it's on, it's on you or your fans or followers or however you want to put it to be the ones to nominate you. So if, you know, you can't expect one organization to know about everything that's out there now if you, well, I said we were going to hold off on getting into this. So <laughs> you open that can of worms. Yeah. But I mean, there's, there's a lot to break down with it. And, and it's, it's funny because I've changed my mind so much about it because I was so against it and I'm still against the ones that just, you know, pick who to, 
Oh, you're talking the arbitrary proclamation. We are so and so, and we say this is. No, it's not. It's not like that. It's it's just more like. You know, the awards are on this date, and here's the five people in this category, and here's the five people in that category. Well, how'd you come up with the five people in the category? How'd you, know? you come up with the category? Well I, well, I think anybody could look at the paranormal world and be able to come well, up with a list of categories. What's the criteria for the categories? what uh, I'm saying. You know? But it's, it's, you know, it's never anything... It's never anything that's well-defined. It's always mm-hmm. like, you know, TV show of the year, which, you know, fine, you expect that. Radio show, podcast, you expect all that. That makes sense. And really, like, you could probably have tons of different awards with that. And, you know, it's like having, uh, and I don't know how they how they decide them all, but, like, you know, there's the American Music Awards and there's the Grammys. So you can have multiple yeah. Award shows that handle the same topic, multiple awards selections. Um, so that doesn't bother me as much. But it's when it starts to get into things like, you know, investigator of the year and, you know, um, anything that's like, you know, move, move the uh, move the field forward the most or things like that. Like that's when it starts to get OK. Like the people who are probably the investigator, you know, people who are like deserving of that title are probably people that you've never heard about because they're not all over social media right. and television and things. Not they're, that, not to say there's anything they're that people actually have gotten, doing things. You mean, right? But not not the. I'm not saying the people who have gotten that award don't deserve it. Oh. I'm just saying there's probably people who are doing even more that we just don't know about. So uh, we can talk about that later on. We can take your calls on it. Uh, but I do want to start off the show here because there's an announcement that I've been wanting to make on WBSM for a little while now, but. Um, I was, you know, not here last week. We didn't do a show because of the yeah. storm. Turned out that was a very smart idea. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. Would, we would still have been here uh, a week later, still trying to get ourselves out of here. But, uh, yeah, that was that was quite the storm. And I'm glad that we stayed home and everybody was safe. Uh, then, and remember, too, if you've, you know, if you need your spooky South Coast fix and we're not on, all 642 episodes we've ever done are all available as a podcast. So you can just go and download, you know, 642 episodes and pick and choose whatever you want to hear. Uh, there's also, you know, um, some of those that you probably haven't heard in, you know, guests and topics that you haven't heard in 10 years on this show. So you can go back and, and thumb through those. And if you ever have any trouble where you can't get beyond a certain date, because some of them, some of the different podcast services only load, and this sounds ridiculous to say, but they only have like the most recent two or 300 episodes. Oh. So like if you want things <laughs> that go back past that, uh, then you have to reach out to, to me, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com, and I will give you some places where you can find those older feeds. Uh, we did create a separate feed for a while that had the first like two or 300 episodes uh, but I'm sure even that's been outdated now. But there are some podcast sites that I find that does, you know, that do keep the older ones in circulation. So even though, you know, like Apple Podcasts and I think Spotify maybe even might stop at, you know, episode 400 and something, uh, there's other sites where you can go and download or stream the older ones. And you can go all the way back to the first one. Please don't because of yeah. <laughs> Keith was great. The guest yeah. was awesome. The sound quality, not so much. And you can really hear how bad we were uh, in those early years when you go back and listen to those. But speaking of being very bad at radio, (laughs) I have an announcement to make. Um, So uh, for those of you who don't know, my day job here 
at the station. I actually am the digital managing editor for WBSM and Fun 107. So my job here is to run the digital side of things, uh, you know, the social media stuff for both brands, the articles that we put out. You know, I help with the writers, you know, coming up with ideas. And then when they write the articles, I help them with editing it to make sure it's, you know, good and, and um um, what's the word I'm looking for? Grammatically correct. Yeah. And, you know, it's just all those little things. Like when you're writing and you're excited, you know, you might have a typo and you don't catch it. And then when you go back and read it again, you might not see that typo. You know, so. Because always, you know what you meant when you wrote it. it it's always good to have yeah. an extra set of eyes. Uh, and then, you know, monitoring the social media comments and all that kind of stuff. And also, like, everything that goes into building our websites and our apps and stream, the podcasting that we're doing now, all that stuff. You know, it's a, it's a lot to handle, so that's why we have somebody here that, that handles all of that, and I'm the most recent person to fill that role, but um, I've been promoted. So starting uh, next week, uh, not next week, but the week after, starting February 14th. Um, Valentine's Day. Yeah, it's, uh, it's whatever, February 14th. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, I like to call it the day that usually 99 has prime rib. Yeah. So that's that's why it's the only re reason I care about that day. But the um the promotion will have me focusing just on WBSM. So I'm going to be what's called the assistant brand manager. I'll be, you know, working in the programming end and we'll be as we go along, you know, kind of freshening up some of the imaging that you hear for the different shows and I'll be helping the hosts with, I'll still be helping them with the content that they're writing, but also, you know, helping them with ideas for their shows and, and, um, and maybe coming up with some different shows that we can put on the air and all kinds of things like that, uh, which is, you know, something that I was all for. All right. So you're Andy from WKRP now. Yeah. Well, except for the fact that, um, I don't, I only own like two, plaid shirts <laughs> wait a minute now who gets to be less nesman well i i think that um i used Bill? to refer i used to refer to myself as the less nesman when i was in the newsroom because i was just like yeah the the lonely guy working in there by myself in the afternoons but uh there's you know there's going to be all kinds of new responsibilities that i have as part of that but one of the things that will be happening uh, beginning February 14th, is I'm going to have my own daily talk show. So as uh, as those of you who listen to WBSM on a regular basis know, uh, Chris McCarthy was the longtime host from 10 to noon here on WBSM, the fastest two hours in radio. Uh, and, you know, he was just on fire uh, with some of the stories he was breaking and the local topics he was covering. Uh, he was really just in such a groove. And then all of a sudden, in March of last year, he got hit with a bad bout of COVID-19. And for those who are not regular WBSM listeners, if you really want to find out the whole story, if you go to WBSM.com, you'll see in the in the menu at the top, Help Chris McCarthy. When you click on that, it's going to give you the whole story of what happened. But long story short, he was too young to have been vaccinated at that point. Uh, and then what happened was he had to be hospitalized. And they it just took such a sharp turn so quickly 
Uh, it was it was unbelievable the things that he had to go through. And he there's audio on this on the website uh, with that story of him explaining exactly what he went through of them like pumping the warm air into his lungs to try to keep it so that he could breathe. And and he died on the table. And they were able to bring him back. He had two strokes, two heart attacks um, during the the fight against this. And then when he finally seemed like he was out of the woods. Mm -hmm. Now he's one of his kidneys is shutting down and he needs a kidney transplant and he's on dialysis every day. So there's all of this stuff that's been going on in his life that's kept him from being able to return to his show. And so what we decided was rather than kind of keep things hanging over him like, Chris, you've got to get back. You've got to get back. You know, there's a Chris McCarthy show that's happening without you and, and giving like that pressure to him. And um, and certainly, you know, in, in conversations with him, <clears throat> He still wants to come back. Like, he's fighting every day to be able to come back on the air. Um, but it's just, you know, it's a long, long process. So what we're going to do is I'm going to take over that slot, but I'm going to be on from 9 to noon every day. Um, so I'll be taking an hour from Phil, uh, yeah. and we'll, we'll, I'll be on from 9 to noon. And as part of that, we're going to have a weekly segment with Chris McCarthy with me. And then he's also going to be contributing to all the other shows. Uh, we're, we're creating this special contributor correspondent role for him. So he'll also be calling in to Phil's show, Barry's show, Marcus, Ken, you know. Uh, he'll be able to, to, to talk about all the local topics that are going on with all of these guys. But I want him to be able to have a standing spot with me each and every week. And then he'll, he'll also be writing some articles for us and things like that. So he's, we're actually going to be able to increase the role from what he's doing right now, but he just won't be back on full time. And then, you know, when he's healthy and up to it, then things change and we can see what we can do then. But for now, like this way here, you know, rather than try to wait for him to be able to come back to the role that exists, why not just create a role for him? Because he's such a valuable member of the team and he's part of the family and people probably don't know this, but, you know, there's times when, you know, He's in our ear giving us breaking news tips and, you know, giving us all kinds of insights and people to talk to. He's been helping this station pretty much since he, you know, regained consciousness after fighting COVID-19. We get texts and calls from him all the time. So it's like, let's put this to use and give him a role to be able to do all this. So Chris will still be involved with the station. He's not going anywhere. We're also talking about a Chris McCarthy podcast, which I'm excited for because... I think an uncensored Chris McCarthy podcast, you never know where that could go. Uh, he's had some guests that he's wanted to bring on, and it's almost like, gee, I don't know if we could do that on regular terrestrial radio, especially he's uh, people that listen to him know this about him. He's a huge true crime buff. Uh, he is definitely one of the foremost experts on the New England mafia. I mean, there's all these things that he could just do long-form discussions and interviews about that will just be fantastic podcasts. So looking forward to that as well, but I'm also looking forward to being able to at least get once a week where him and I can go back and forth and talk and, you know, and as, as he feels healthier, we, we can start increasing that role. So starting the 14th, uh, the Tim Weisberg show will begin nine to noon. I'll also have a daily podcast. So if you're not able to listen to it cause you're at work, you can get the podcast version. And also we will have, um, you know, it'll be on WBSM's website. It'll be on the WBSM app streaming. You can hear us on 1420 AM and 99.5 FM. So all these different ways to consume the, the, the content. And also 
I'm going to try to, because I've spent all the last couple of years helping to build up these digital assets that we have, I want to make sure that I'm definitely incorporating a lot of that into the program. So during the show, you'll be able to text me because we have what we call app chat on the WBSM app. So you'll be able to send in any text messages that you want. And you can do that during this show too. We also have what's called, you know, the WBSM was famous for many years for being the open line station yep. where you could just call in and talk about whatever was on your mind. Well, we actually brought that feature back and it's on the WBSM app. So if you open up the app and you look, one of the buttons on the app says open line. If you press that, you're going to get a minute to say whatever it is that you want to get off your mind, uh, you know, off your chest and and get it recorded in there. And then what we do is we listen back. And if it's something that we can put on the air, we'll put it on the air. So, you know, just like we'll take phone calls every morning and put you on the air that way, we'll also be able to take these recordings and put, put those on the air too. FCC rules still apply. They do. When the good thing about having it be recorded yeah. <laughs> is, you know, we're going to screen it. So don't think like we're just going to be playing it directly from the app onto the air. We're going to know you're not going to pull one by us. Um, but it's 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 kind of it's all of the stuff that we've been doing, you know, on this show for years. Yeah. Like now it's becoming the norm in radio. Not that I'm saying that we're groundbreaking. It's just we had to we had to come up with different ways for people to reach out and communicate because it's Saturday night at 10 p.m. Not everybody wants to get on the phone and make a phone call. Right. Uh, so and now like that applies during people's work days as well. So if the boss is watching you and you don't think you can get away with, you know, making a phone call and sitting and waiting on hold while the other callers are on and you just want to get what's off your mind, go duck into the bathroom, open up the WBSM app, say what you got to say and, you know, you can get back to work. Yep, and um, emails still work. I, I'm sure that they can send you texts or emails to... Sure, yeah. absolutely, yeah. And my email for, for the daytime show, I know we always say Tim at, uh, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com on this show, but it's uh, Tim at WBSM.com, nice and simple. That's the advantage of being the first person. Uh, it's... um. I want to say, it, so there's been two Tims okay. because we had another Tim that worked in the newsroom. So, and we're going to have another Phil coming in. Um, we've never had another Barry, never had another Ken. No, we did have another Ken. He was an intern. Uh, we've never had another Chris. So it, it's an advantage to always be the first person with that name. <laughs> to get the yeah. email address so that I can, you know, I get to be Tim at WBSM.com. Uh, at least on this show, I didn't have to fight anybody else for the Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com email. True. No, instead, I, I and Casa had to make separations. Yes, you guys, you guys ran into that problem. But, yeah. I mean, have we ever really called you Matt anyway? You've kind of always been Moniz. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's how it started. It did start for a differentiation between you and Matt Costa. Right. But it just kind of... Well, you knew it became Matt persona. before me. Yes. So. But I knew you. I didn't even know your last name, though, when yeah. I first knew you. So you were Matt the sound guy. Yeah. So I knew that you were Matt, but it just, you know, I think we had a discussion about it. We're like, we're just going to call you Moniz and we'll call him Matt. Okay. Because he didn't want to just be called Costa. And um, the Silent Assassin is a great, like, nickname for him. Right. But it's not something that you use conversationally. Correct. Like, you're not going to be in the middle of a conversation and be like, hey, Silent Assassin, what do you think about this? You yeah, know? They, they, that can lead to other questions. And we didn't want to make his email address Silent Assassin at SpookySouthCoast.com because people would have spelled Assassin all different kinds of ways. <laughs> and also, it almost get, got to the point where it's like, 
so much stuff was happening in the world where we're like, can we really keep using the assassin moniker or is mm -hmm. it like, is it getting dangerous to, to keep that tag on him? But it was, you know, it was because of the way that he sliced and diced the audio and everything oh, yeah. was going on on the show. And he would just like, you wouldn't even know it was coming. He would just play something and you'd be like, when did you make that? That's amazing. <laughs> and he's still that way. He just does it for the Howie Carr show now. Well, the thing that I'm impressed is all of the stuff we were talking about being groundbreaking with, you know, doing podcasts and video and everything. That was all Matt's doing. Right. You know, he, he knew the electronics. He was looking at... Well, he didn't, he, was very, he didn't know. He had no idea on any of that stuff, but he put in the time and the research to figure it all out. No, but I mean, he saw ahead how how that would eventually be coming to more modern play. He he saw the technology, wanted to try it out with us just to see if he could do it. It did it, and then you turn around, and the next thing you know, everybody and their brother has a podcast. And I can tell you that's one of the reasons he's working for the Howie Carr Show now, because... Yeah. You know, they saw in him the abilities that he has, and they stole them away. And he's, it's not <laughs> yeah. really stealing them away. He's still a WBSM. But, you know, it, it just turns out to be a, a better thing for him. And um, and now that I'll be doing this daytime show, I'm sure the question that's going to come up on people's minds, what are you going to be talking about? Well, it's not going to be a paranormal show. Uh, there may be some times that we... You know, well, incorporate some topics. You know, yeah. I mean, every. I mean, I've talked to so many great people between this show and Midnight Society that, you know, I've got a, a big rolodex full of people that can talk about a variety of different things. Um, but we're going to keep it topical. We're going to keep it local. Uh, one of the things that I do, I was thinking about, we could probably have Stephanie come on like every, you know, like once a month or something and do readings just because she's never had the chance to really come on and do that because on this show, yeah. We don't want to do that because if we do one, if we even did one episode where Stephanie was doing we would, readings, we would have people constantly contact every week. talk to Stephanie. Right, yeah. every week people yeah. would think that's that's what the show is about. Yeah. So uh, you know, maybe I haven't talked to her about it, but you know, you know, maybe we bring her on for that. And uh, you know, there's certainly a lot of local histories that I'm going to dive into. Anybody that listened to my old Saturday morning show, it's going to be very much similar stuff, except I less think, wrestling. I don't know if it'll be less. <laughs> okay. uh, there'll there'll be some. Okay. And then the other, you know, the other part of it is I want to hear from people in the community. Uh, you know, if you've got a, a good topic for us to discuss, if you've got a good guest that you want to recommend, any of that stuff, I want to find people that are out there that we you know we don't get the chance to tell their stories all the time because, you know, th when you're on in that time slot from nine to noon, you're not. It's, you know, poor Phil, he's got things coming out of a mile a minute. He's got to be ready to pivot at any given time. Whatever stories are breaking, whatever things are going on, um, I don't have to worry so much about that. You know, I can kind of get into something and, and do a dive. Uh, so that's that's why I want to be able to bring in some, certainly some local history. Uh, talking about, I want to bring in some of the local historical societies, talk about some of these historic buildings that we have around here, uh, because I just feel like, you know, there's there's more of a necessity to save these places. We're going to talk about it with Christy tonight uh, in the next hour. But there's a necessity on saving these places because as much as the pandemic has hurt tourism and has hurt people going to these places, it was already not in a great place before the pandemic. Yeah. It was hard to get people excited about some of these places, you know, unless you can say to them, oh, and they're, say to people, oh, and they're haunted too, and you can come and buy a ticket and hunt for ghosts with us. Like, that's great, and that certainly has helped save a lot of places. But 
there's a lot of other places that, you know, don't want to go that route or, mm-hmm. you know, haven't had the the kind of haunted history to be able to, to pull that off. So, you know, I want to be able to, to feature those things and talk about them. And it's what I find interesting. And I think if I find it interesting, the audience will too. I mean, Barry Richard, who's on every afternoon here on WBSM, has written a series of articles because he's just getting great response and he, and it's it's in, it's one idea is pouring into another into another and he's been writing a lot of these nostalgia articles kind of like remembering when New Bedford had this or did this or this and he wrote an article yesterday about how when he was a kid growing up in the 60s him and all of his friends would rush home every day after school to watch dark shadows mm-hmm. and apparently New Bedford had a big fan base for Dark Shadows. Because of the local writer. He and, was he was from the area. And apparently, this is something that I was unaware of, and I'm going to be working on an article about it, but the there's a cemetery in Dartmouth that, that has inspired I, the names I've been of there. the characters. I've been there. So, and then of course, you know, Seaview Terrace, which was where they filmed the exteriors, that's in Newport. Newport. That's, yep. that's actually on the market right now. If you're interested... It's you know, um it's owned by Salve Regina, isn't it? Uh they no, they they, they did leased it, it time. They or, leased it for a while to use as a dorm building. Yeah. But now it's privately owned. Okay. And it's up for sale. So I know if, it was connected to them. It's thirty million dollars. That's it? Yeah. So if you want to lend me well, it's twenty nine point nine million dollars. So if you want to lend me, you know, twenty nine million dollars. You can get a penny made for that, right? That, it's uh <laughs> I think you have to even be pre-qualified to even email the realtor to ask about it. Yeah. I don't even think you can send an email unless you uh, unless you have the money already in the bank. But it's, yeah, it's $30 million if anybody wants to buy it. Uh, let us know if you do. And they filmed the... Um, we'll come check it out. The, the uh, Johnny Depp uh, in the same building, if I'm not mistaken. Don't. Probably. There's, there's a lot of places. You'd be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't be surprised. There's a lot of places that claim to be filming locations for Dark Shadows. Real, no, I mean the exterior that definitely I used to walk watch Dark Shadows. You know, but there's Yeah, I remember it back in 1969. Yeah, I'm that old. There's all these places that are like, "Oh, and we were they filmed the exteriors for Dark Shadows here." Like, "No, they filmed those at Seaview Terrace." "Oh, well, they filmed the interiors here." "No, that was on a sound stage." Yes. So, you know, I'm sure that there were other buildings that they used throughout the course of the series that they went to some creepy places in New England and took some photos of. But um yeah, the interiors were on a soundstage. And when I, you know, I've gone back and watched the old episodes and I love like seeing the, like the, the pole with the bat oh, yeah, on the yeah. end of it and like the boom mic coming down or mm. somebody missing their mark and the reflection of the camera and the windows in the back. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great fun. And, and I guess it's one of the few shows that was live at the time like that. Yeah. They still have all the episodes of. So I think it's, um, uh, I think Tubi or one of those like free apps, you can go back and watch every single episode. So, you know, there's like, there's like 3000. So get started and you can catch up in time to, uh, <laughs> once you're finished, then you can go buy the mansion and then let us in and check it out to investigate it. But yeah, so things like that, you know, the nostalgia, stuff like that, people care about those topics and they want to discuss them. So I'm sure I'll be doing a lot of that kind of stuff too. So that'll start February 14th. Uh, the unvalentine's day <laughs> event uh the only thing you have to love that, to tune in for that is talk radio uh now let's go back to that discussion that i started 
at the top of the show. And we'll discuss this until the end of the hour. Then Chrissy will join us after the 11 o'clock news about these paranormal awards. You, okay. you work in a field where, you know, in, in, and I'm, I'm, putting, I'm putting the field of science all together. So I'm not even getting hyper, yeah. hyper um, centralized on, on the exact uh, work that you do. But just in the field of science, there is a myriad of different types of awards and honors and things yep. that people can win. There's obviously the big ones that people care about. Yeah. Uh, I think a Nobel Prize is probably the yeah, top. It's one of them. Uh, it's certainly the top money prize out of anything. Well, but Well, yeah. The, as you go down, you know, the line, there's there's all certain different associations and organizations and, right. you know, and they all will put on their own awards. I mean, I've won journalism awards um, that, you know, it's not a Pulitzer, but I've won like a New England Press Association Award. Yeah, it's still um, an award. Yeah, it's being recognized for your work by your peers. And, you know, uh, it, it's, and, and it's, it does mean something within that field. Right. So while I can go and talk to, if I walked into, you know, the supermarket across the street and I said, well, just to let you know, I, uh, I won a New England Press Association Award for uh, Best Sports Story. They'd be like, what's wrong with you? Weird flex, bro. Okay. Like, like who just comes in and talks about that? But if I go into a job interview, you know, like if I'm applying for a job here as a writer or applying for a newspaper or something, and, and I can put on my resume that I've won this award, it matters to those people. Uh, it looks impressive when you hang it up in your office. I've never hung it up in my office. I don't even know where it is. But the um, <laughs> it's somewhere in my home office. Yeah. But the, um, it, it, you know, the, it, it, it matters to the people in the field. The thing about these paranormal awards, awards is... I don't think that even matters to the people that are in the field. I don't think anybody like looks at one person better than another or looks at a, at a person even differently than another because they've won one of these awards because we kind of all have this social contract between us that we all know that they don't mean anything. It's nice if you get it, but it, don't be heartbroken if you don't. And that's kind of where I've changed my position. At first, I was like, we shouldn't be doing this at all because, you know, this is going to cause derision unnecessarily and all of that. But then the more I look at it, I'm like, well, it doesn't really hurt anybody if anybody wins it, except for the people that take it personally if they don't get nominated or that they don't win. And I think that that is where we need to address the situation. Don't feel like because you're not recognized that that means that the work that you do isn't valid. We've been doing this show, and I'm going to say it again. I'm going to keep saying it for 16 years now. And I don't think we've ever been nominated in any of these awards categories. There was one like podcasting awards that we got nominated one time for because one of our listeners nominated us and we came in like last place in the voting for it. Well, also we're constantly saying it's not about us. It's always about the subject matter. Yeah, but still like in terms of, in terms of the show, you know, like people will still want to people will still want to see it get recognition. We don't really care because like, what are we going to win? Yeah. Uh, like, so what? Uh, and it used to be like some of these things where like they would give you a little badge and you'd put it on your website, like at the bottom, like nobody would ever do that today. Like nobody would ever be like, Oh, uh, association of paranormal podcasters, you know, gold award 1997. Like nobody would put that on their website anymore. But, and I think it was more like a way to, it was almost like a, a, a way to promote, the people that were giving the awards, the awards on your site. Yeah. But the, you know, so 16 years of doing their show, 
nobody's ever given us a podcasting award. You know, I was I won the Paranormal Rewind Award for Midnight Society last year for um, for best radio show, I think. So like that's nice, you know. But I also know that the people that put that list together consume as much of the paranormal content as they can. Yeah. So it's a little bit more of a valid selection because they they do have their ear to the ground and finger on the pulse of what's going on. The the problem with so many of these awards is there's no way that you could keep track of everything that's going on. If you wanted to give out a show for Paranormal Podcast of the Year, well, there's a million of them. So... Where do you cut the line? What is the criteria for making this selection? You're right. There, say, you know, just to be on a conservative effort, maybe 3,000 of them, you know, and various subscriber levels or listener levels. There's new ones that pop up every day and new ones that drop off every day. So out of those arbitrary th- three thousands, what do you, number one, how are you going to listen to them all and make a judgment out of all of them? And if you want to go that route of having, you know, you accept nominations from, from the general public, uh, they nominate the shows. Then you take all those nominations in and you figure out whatever that criteria is. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's that you look at how many people nominated each one and you say, well, Spooky South Coast got a million nominations, so they're on the list of five or six. And then, you know, we'll see who else. Or maybe you say, okay, I'm going to take the top 20 vote getters and I'm going to listen to five or six episodes of those 20 and then I'm going to whittle it down. Either way, you're casting a wide enough net that you can at least get some different things in there than what you might have been aware of. So like look at look at the way that it works in um like the the Emmy Awards or the Oscars, things like that. So they submit I know for the Emmys it definitely works this way. Like they will take certain episodes that they want to uh submit for consideration for different categories. Right. So let's just say they had a really Great episode with a with the lighting was fantastic. Like, oh, the lighting in this episode was like nothing I've ever seen before. We're gonna send that off to the Academy Television Arts and Sciences to say this we want to get nominated for for best lighting. And you know, here's our lighting person. And so then they have the material to review to determine, you know, what's gonna make it into the into the voting. Uh, and if you're going to go through that process with things in the paranormal, then that makes it a little bit more fair. But to just arbitrarily say, like, here are five things that we think fit this category, that just leads me to naturally think you're picking the five that you know. Okay. And usually if it's the five that you know, that means it's the five that are probably your friends. And now you're really getting into dangerous territory because not only are people going to feel like your awards don't have any weight or merit, but now you're also only going to be able to pick one of your friends in a category and you might piss off your other friends. So is that really like a smart way to go for what do you get out of it? Like, what do you get out of these awards? The the people that put them on, I mean, okay. You know, the people who win them can tout them and do whatever they want with them. But to the people that, that hand them out, what does it mean? Like, that's where I start to really get worried because are you, are you, getting bribed to select somebody to put them on this? Are you getting promised things? Are you getting attention for yourself? Um, and some of these 
that just led me to an in, a interesting question here. Who are you to say that you're worthy enough to be the one to select that's, Yeah. That's the, the other part of it is these other awards that we've been talking about, like the Emmys, the Grammys, Science Awards, mm -hmm. the Pulitzer, the Nobel, all this stuff, they all have committees and organizations that are representative of those fields. We don't have that in the paranormal, and we're never going to. As much as we've talked about the need right. for it, it's never going to happen because you can say we're going to put, you know, John Zaffis, Jason Hawes, Zach Bagans, and, you know, whoever else you want to put. I should probably, you know, cast a wider net and just the names I'm selecting. But, you know, you yeah, can I say, get your point. Yeah. And then somebody else is going to be like, well, you just pick people that are, you know, on TV and on social media. Like, how about scientists and all that? You know, like, uh, and, and so then it turns into a, a not even a non-agreement about who should be the people that are representing the field. So, and I, I'm using the word field as much as I hate using it because uh, it's not a field. It's a, it's a community. A field would actually be like legitimate research and, 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 uh, and peer review and all that kind of stuff. We don't allow that. It's a community. It's people that just like to talk to each other and share things with each other. It's a community of people who share the same hobby. It's an unrecognized field. Let's I, put it that I don't, way. I don't like to use the word field. Well, if you wanted to try and apply a field definition to it, it's not, I, yes. It's, it's, it's the existence of everything that's shared is shared for a community basis. It's being shared for networking purposes, not necessarily because you're saying there was a time when you could get your stuff peer reviewed yeah. when you could put it out there and be like, hey, everybody, what did you think? Now you put it out there and somebody says, uh, well, I, I got to tell you like that, uh, um, you know, you were out in a graveyard when it was raining. So all these little things that you're calling orbs are probably just raindrops reflecting on the flash of the camera. You're a bully. Leave me alone. You know, like that's not exactly fostering a field, yeah. but that's for lack of a better term, a, a community. So I've given up on the idea of there being unity. And I'm not talking about power unity that, that we've definitely <laughs> thrown out the, the window, but just there being this unified idea of, um, of what everybody can get on the same page with. So then now look at who it is that are selecting these awards and ask yourself that same question. What is their criteria? Why, what are their qualifications? What, is, what do they have to gain from putting this out? There was one award show that would happen. These awards were legitimately an award show. Like there would be an event at a place where people would buy tickets yeah. and they would come and blah, blah, blah. And so I'm like, well... And there were actual physical awards like you hand out. But also, like, what does somebody gain out of that? Now you're getting whatever, 50 bucks a head from each person that goes. And, of course, people that are nominated are going to want to go. So they're going to buy tickets. So And then they're going to tell their friends and family and their paranormal team members and all that stuff. So they're going to bring people in. And then you might get some other people that are fans of the field that are going to say, well, if this person was nominated, they're going to show up. This is my chance to go and meet them. You know, So you're going to start selling all these tickets to this thing. And uh, what is the overhead on just handing out a bunch of statues? I've done it before for sports leagues. It's not that much. Like those little like yeah. plastic statues that they hand out, they're like four bucks each when you buy them in bulk. So, and then like they might charge another dollar or two to engrave them. So like you're really not dealing with uh, a huge overhead. I'm, you know, I'm sure they put out a nice meal and they have it in a nice hall and all that, but somebody's pocketing money off of this. 
Somebody's putting on this award show for the sole purpose of putting money in their pocket on the work of everybody else. So that's another thing to think about, too. I, I, I don't know if the award shows are still happening, obviously, you know, with, um, COVID. Co with COVID, but also, too, with the fact that I'm sure the scope of where you're selecting your people from has grown as we've become more connected through social media. And so then therefore it's probably harder to have one centralized location because people aren't going to fly in from, you know, other places to come to this award show. But it was one thing if you were doing it just locally and it was with local people, but the more you have to expand it out, the harder it gets to, to be able to bring people in for that. I'm just, I'm, I'm glad that we, we used to talk about doing the spookies. Mm -hmm. But it was, you know, it was totally tongue in cheek. Oh yeah, uh, it was, and I think we, I think we did it one year. I think we, we did like year number three or four. Or something I think like we that. did it one time where, like, and it was a total joke. Yeah. Uh, but if you if you go back and look at it, like, I'm so glad that, that didn't turn into a thing, <laughs> because even as a joke, even as a tongue in cheek thing, if we kept bringing it back every year, it would have been a huge disaster. I think now we might have a little bit more cachet to say, we're going to do the spookies and it's not going to be serious. So don't take it serious. But I still wouldn't want to do it because somebody's going to take it too seriously and get upset. And then they'll tell everybody that we're a terrible podcast, which they're, you know, they're not wrong, but they'll you know say that we're playing favorites and all that kind of stuff. What we could do, and I don't think anybody would mind if we did this, if the spookies we're not about the paranormal community, not about paranormal media or anything like that. If we just focused on snacks, Ooh. that's where we have the authority. Yeah. I think I think people out there, they may not trust our opinions and our thoughts and and uh, and, and and our work even in the paranormal world. They might be like, "Well, who the hell are you guys? You're just uh, right. you're just like everybody else." But when it comes to snacks, we are bona fide. And recognized. Yes. And so I think we can get away with maybe doing that. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's something that we can plan for later this year. W you yeah. know, with the idea of it being a fun thing. Uh, and mainly just to get us that Swedish Fish sponsorship finally. <laughs> You're in my head. But that's, you know, that's where, that's where you can at least have a good time with it. And nobody's going to walk away upset and offended. I mean, Black Licorice will probably be upset because I will talk about how it's, you know, terrible. And no, but no human being should ever eat it. I don't think it's that bad. Oh, it's not, it's not the worst worst one I've ever had. Oh, it's horrendous. I, I agree. It's not something I eat every day, but you know, I'll eat anything in the world except black licorice and cottage cheese. Yeah, I'm with you on the cottage. Cheese. Anything else I will eat. I can't do it. Every once in a while, I try. I get some cottage cheese and I try it. See if I can do it. Here we can't go. Do it. Black licorice flavored cottage cheese. Nope. <laughs> I've even tried the cottage cheese with like the pineapple in it because I love pineapple. Like, nope, can't do it. Okay. It's just, and it's not a texture thing. I know people are always like, oh, it's a texture thing. Like, no, I love feta cheese. Mm -hmm. I love all kinds of things that have the same. I love tapioca pudding, that has the same texture Food as cottage cheese. cheese. Yeah. I like I like all that stuff. It's just I just don't like the cottage cheese. Okay. Um, Nobody's going to change my mind about that. All right. Well, we are going to take a break for the news. When we come back on the other side, we'll be joined by Christy Parrish. She's going to join us to talk about everything that's going on, not only at the Oliver Estate. She's going to catch us up 
with a lot of the activity that's been going on there as of late. But she's also going to tell us about some new projects, some new locations that you'll be able to go and check out. And uh, you're going to want to get into these spots because uh, the stuff that I've been hearing from Christy about them, they just sound amazing. And uh, we'll also talk to her, too, about what is being planned, uh, not only at those locations, but also at the Oliver Estate for this year as people are looking to get out and about and back to things, all things spooky. Speaking of which, go check out our events page at SpookySouthCoast.com. We've got a couple of things planned there as well. We'll take a quick break and then back with more Spooky South Coast right here on WBSM. South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, along with science advisor Matt Moniz. And uh, that, of course, is the great intro made for us by our friend. Well, it was made for my other show, but we had, we adopted it when it uh, it didn't continue on as the, as the theme. Uh, but uh, we're going to be talking in just a moment with a longtime friend of ours. Uh, but before we do... I uh, just want to remind everybody that, uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, we are available as a podcast. The Spooky South Coast podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. And 642 episodes in the can already, not counting tonight's. So there's a lot to catch up on. And you can go and get that re- literally anywhere you find podcasts. Like if there's a random site called called like podcastpiranha.com, I'm sure that might even be a site. You know, you'll find us there, but you'll also find us where all of the major ones are too, such as um, Apple Music, Google Play, Spotify. Uh, I think that's the biggest major ones people go to. Stitcher, we're on there too. So all these different places, you'll be able to find the Spooky South Coast podcast. You can go back and you can listen to some of our past episodes, including some of our Bridgewater Triangle investigation shows in which we've had Christy and the crew over mm-hmm. at the Oliver Estate there. We've had episodes where we've, where we've discussed the Oliver Estate history in depth. All of that stuff is available for you to find anytime that you want to hear it. Uh, but we're going to get into some exciting new stuff that's going on with Christy. So let's bring her on the line. Good evening, Christy. Are you there? I am. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, you sound great. How are you? Okay, um, I'm trying this on a Bluetooth, so I'm, I'm hoping you hear it all right. It Thank sounds perfectly fine. I would I would never okay. have known you were on one. Yeah, no, I think my sister is drunk downstairs, so I needed quiet. <laughs> <laughs> That's, it's always it's always fun and exciting here, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you're so you're not at the Oliver Estate tonight. You're with family tonight. I 
am. I'm in. Uh, I'm back in Tennessee tonight. I'm in Columbia, Tennessee. I'm going to stay here for a week with my family and visit with my friends here. And it's, it's been a long time since I've been home. You just kind of need to recharge your batteries a little bit sometimes. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be back. You've been you've been busier than you know anybody else that I know with everything that's been going on, uh, not just at the Oliver Estate, but all the other things that you have in the works. And we're going to discuss some of that, but certainly. I don't even know if you, did you even slow down during the, the, the depths of the pandemic? It seemed like you were always out doing something at some point. Yeah, I, I was, I never stopped. I, even when we couldn't go into locations, I took that as my cue to kind of dig my heels in deep and kind of start planning and trying to come up with some different kind of fundraiser ideas. So I really didn't. I never, never really took a break. Um, maybe had a lot of sleepless nights, actually, because, you know, sometimes when I get on the idea front, it drives me bonkers until I figure out what's the first step and how do we get there. Yeah, so let, let's just talk a little bit, because I don't think we've ever really dove into your like personal journey at all, but let's talk a little bit about how, you know, you stepped into the role there at the Oliver Estate and, you know, being somebody that I knew as a, as a, one of the best paranormal investigators around, that doesn't always necessarily translate to being able to take on the responsibility of overseeing a location like that. Uh, no, it, and it, it's a true challenge. It really is because, um, first off, let's, let's, let's talk about how I come to be there. Um, I just happened to be kind of traipsing around and you know how I really enjoyed going to different events and, and paracons and, and I made my way up to Salem to the Hawthorne Hotel for uh, Salem Con and I was sitting in the a restaurant there at the Hawthorne Hotel having my lunch, having my chicken nuggets at the bar, you know, and uh, this lady walked over and sat down next to me and we had just started having conversation and she was very nice and everything and kind of hit it off and uh, she was telling me, so, um, so do you, do you do this? She said, she asked me, she said, do you do these, these ghost things? And I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> I really enjoy doing them. I don't think she really knew that I had any kind of investigative background or experience. I just think it was a good conversation between two new people. And she says, well, you know, I, I was thinking about doing some, some ghost tours. And I thought, well, I've never done a tour, tour like that before. I've done other kind of tours, historic tours and stuff. But I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe this might be something I, I would take a shot at. And so um, she was telling me it was a, a house, and it was uh, built in 1769. And uh, she says it's got extensive history there, and there's been teams that went in and investigated, uh, and they've recorded voices within the house and felt touching. And so I was like, this is kind of kind of fascinating to me. It doesn't frighten me. I was like, I'm intrigued by this. And she says, would you be interested in possibly coming out and helping? And I, I said, well, yeah, I would. I would. We exchanged information, and it wasn't very long after that. She gave me a call, and I'll never forget the day. She called me up. It's like the middle of the day. And she said, Christy, she says, are you busy? And I was like, no, not too much. I'm not. And she says, do you want to come to the Oliver House and uh, help pull weeds? 
And that was it. <laughs> Just pull weeds, you know. She said, bring some work boots, some work gloves, some long pants, and just be prepared to get pretty dirty, you know. Uh, so that was where it started, is driving down to Middleborough. I lived in Norwood at the time here in Massachusetts, driving down there. And the moment that I, I pulled into that driveway, you have these moments that it's like you're exactly where you need to be. And it just feels right, like it's a purpose behind it. And um, I fell in love with it before I ever stepped inside of it. So um, I don't know. I, it, that that just sort of it came easy, even though there are a lot of struggles after that. Uh, and to, to be fair, too, it didn't it didn't look anything like it does now when you first went there. It was in a yeah. it, was, it was in yeah. a far more state of disrepair. Yeah. It, it really was. It kind of, you you opened the door. The first time they opened the door and I actually walked inside the house, it was bare. There was no furniture. It was nothing. But still, you could, like, feel that this was a true home to people. And so I was like, well, you know, that's some positive steps. Just some of the simpler things that we can do right off the bat that shouldn't cost a lot of money is start bringing this house alive again you know and, and making it feel welcoming and inviting to people instead of cold and just a shell and and uh but it, it it's uh it the struggle has really been um for that property in particular is there was a divide a divide with between the the people within the town of middleborough and it was really sad in the beginning to watch them argue about should we knock this house down, you know, and, and put in a shopping mall or a coffee shop or low-income housing. or And then on the opposite end, this other end of the spectrum, you had the historic people in town representing it saying, no, it's a, it's a historic staple. You need to save it. You need to preserve it. And so in the beginning, that struggle was really hard to have to try to do the tours to support the house because you were having all of this, you know, pushback a lot, and, you know, negative comments. And some were pretty dangerous up to the point of actually threatening people's lives. Um, but it was something that I just wasn't going to bend from. Uh, and I, I stuck it out. And, and it's become kind of the blueprint to be able to look around. And, and, of course, we'll talk about this tonight because you have been able to use it as a blueprint for other locations. But to say, mm -hmm. hey, look, there is value in doing this. There is value in putting money in the restoration. There is value in allowing the paranormal world to come and be part of this. And mm -hmm. the important part is you can see that it becomes a symbol of the town. And, it's, and that's what it's become. It's become a yeah. calling card for Middleborough beyond, you know, beyond mm -hmm. the, the South Coast region. Like if you start, if you go and you mention Middleborough, Massachusetts to people in another state, they're going, oh yeah, the Oliver estate. I saw that on, you know, Kindred Spirits or I saw that on, mm -hmm. you know, Paranormal Lockdown. Like it, 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 mm -hmm. it becomes an ambassador almost for your, for your town. Yeah, and, and here's a here's a cool, interesting fact. Uh, when I return from my trip here and go back to Massachusetts, the very first thing I'm going to do at the Oliver House when I return is I'm going to film a, a short educational video of the history of the house, a walkthrough, and um, then I'm going to live stream with fifth graders in Illinois. Wow. 
this was an idea that uh, one of the um, counselors there at a school there in Illinois had had about trying to get their students more interested and, and to pay attention more to history. And she found the Oliver House by looking for colonial history, and it popped up right up there. You know, and she started to dig into it and came up with this concept that, yeah, it might have stuff to do with ghosts and hauntings. But see, she said the students are interested in that kind of thing. They go home. They watch TV shows. They pay attention to that. It's different. It's a different approach to teach them the stories uh, of our American history and even new versions, what's revealed, to make them think about it. And so, yeah, I'm excited about that. When I get back, that's going to be a first for me. And I, I would like and hope that this kind of segues and has other places interested over time. No matter where you are, we've got this beautiful thing where we can broadcast live stream across the Internet into classrooms. You don't have to be face to face to still draw your students in. And so um, I'm really excited to work on that when I get back. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I remember when I was a kid, I was in <laughs> fifth grade. And we got to participate in this thing where we went to the Museum of Science and they had an auditorium. And on the big screen in the auditorium, we had a live hookup with Dr. Robert Ballard, who discovered the Titanic remains. And he was out in the Galapagos Islands and we had a live uh, hookup with him. And he was able to talk to us and answer our questions and talk to us about what it was like, you know, out there working and, and doing what they were doing. And like to me... And, you know, this is probably 1989. I was blown away by that kind of technology to say, wow, I can actually talk to somebody about something I'm interested in, even though it's nowhere near my part of the world. And so I think, yeah, that's something that a lot of people will will jump on. Uh, the other part of it, though, is, you know, there's you mentioned that there's there's always that fight about do we preserve this location or do we raise it in order to to be able to put something more valuable there because mm -hmm. a lot of people don't see the value in history. You know, a lot of people would rather get the tax revenue that would come from putting in businesses there or the, you know, fit that affordable housing requirement that you're, you have to have in Massachusetts or whatever it might be, because mm -hmm. to them, they don't see the, the benefit of the history. And they say, well, what are we going to start preserving everything? Like, well, are we going to start preserving, you know, the houses of people that live today? Like, no, it doesn't work that way. This history is very specific. It's very special. And, Anybody that went through what our country went through in order to become independent would want to have as many symbols remaining as it can to, to do that. And the Oliver Estate is one of those places where you have that direct connection back to one of the most important things that ever happened in our history. Yeah, and uh, and we're constantly peeling back the layers there uh, as far as the colonial times and with our communication and building the case file and collecting the information from those that walk amongst the, the walls and, and the rooms of the house, um, we learn that sometimes American history, and, and, and this is true, and I know most people understand this to be true too, is, is not just as it's written. It's from a person's perspective. And so what better way than to just get in there in a place like this house and start asking and getting to know what a loyalist was really like. What did they like to do? What was their preference of food? You know, what did they, how did they really feel about Sam Adams? Were they friends? You know, who came to the house? And you, you don't get much better honesty than from the very folks that actually experience it and actually to capture their voice 
on tape just blows my mind. It had the Tories that were there, they have a very specific way that they speak. So when we're in the house and we're recording EVPs, we, we listen for that shift in the way that they say their words. They are very slow, methodical, but it's almost, they don't have a British accent per se, but it's, it's almost very authoritative, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, just highly intelligent. And what I've learned about the Olivers, and this is, this is the beauty of it all, is they love to um, read, read a lot of uh, different books, and they would write their own thoughts on the inside of the book. If they didn't like a word, they would cross it out, and they would write, it should be this, or, or they would put the word near it at the top of the page to represent what they think would have been better worded. Um, which means they, they were just highly educated people. Um, and I have some of those books now, and you haven't seen them yet, out on display at the Oliver Estate with the words written inside, corrected by mm-hmm. the Oliver. Well, one of go the, back to 1600s, I think. One of the things that I've definitely learned from being there and investigating and communicating with the spirits there is, and through my work in you know colonial paranormal research, is that... You know, when we learn history, the loyalists are presented as the villain in the story. They're presented as being on the wrong side of history and being the bad guys that were, you know, trying to keep us from being free. But in reality, that's not the case at all. They were just regular everyday citizens who said, you know what, whatever it is that you're thinking, it's not worth upsetting the apple cart of what we have Mm -hmm. going on here. That, you know, we understand what you're saying. And yeah, you know, it really sucks to go through what we're going through and the taxation without representation and all that. But also... It's a really scary proposition to say we're going to break away and form our own country. I don't know if I'm ready to go down that road as opposed to being somebody who is just, you know, um, trying to keep people oppressed in some way. That's that that wasn't the way that the loyalists thought. They just thought, well, how are we going to make it on our own? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I joke sometimes with folks when I'm telling the story of uh, the lieutenant governor, uh, Andrew Oliver, who was the, the tax collector you know, uh, at, for the Oliver, in the Oliver family. And I just kind of look at folks taking the tour, and I was like, so, you know, before the war, the Revolutionary War, this was the big thing that was going on, you know, the upheaval that was in the society at the time. We're not going to pay taxes. We're not going to pay taxes. So, you know, eventually we went to war, and they won a war. And now how'd that work out for us? Mm-hmm. Aren't we paying a lot of taxes today on just about everything? I mean, we're we're governing ourselves, but (laughs) it's not without its cost. It was yes, that's the thing. It's like we weren't going to do it, but now we do it. (laughs) Death and taxes comes to mind, right? And both both are tied into the Oliver Estate. That's for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So. So. Yeah. I love it there. One of the other really interesting things about it too is. Not only are you there, uh, you have a great team that helps you with uh, all the different tours and events that go on there. You have a lot of people that will come back there again and again to investigate it. So what we have from that location now is a really good long-term case study of the paranormal. 
with a lot of controlled factors that allow us to be able to go back and look and say, okay, now we're starting to see patterns that emerge. Now we're starting to get a little bit of more of an understanding of the phenomena. And of course, as it goes, as much as you start to figure some stuff out, you get thrown a lot of curveballs <laughs> as soon as you think you got to figure it out. You know, just when you think you have all the answers, they go and change the questions to quote Roddy, Roddy, Roddy Piper. Yep, yep. And, you know, I was watching some past videos through the years that I've done at, where I'm actually talking about the history. And I start off talking about the history that was told to me by Middleborough. And then you see the story evolve over time. And I was like, it's kind of like interesting to say, okay, well, she sa I said this, and that was four years ago. And now today, I wouldn't say that because that's not what I believe to be true because of what they told me. Now, every time that they reveal something new to me, I integrate that into the history that I share and force people to think. And I, I think that that's what having a history that's really relatable to people takes the fear out of the fact that, the, you know, it's haunted. And it, it sort of becomes an exciting afternoon when people come in the middle of the day. You think they're coming for a history tour and, you know, they don't give you any other indications of anything else and then it, at some point during the tour and they said tell me about the ghost now and i was like this is just a history tour if you want the ghost that come back for another tour you know it, and keeping it separated is tough sometimes because sure. you know that it goes hand in hand the history and the haunting go hand in hand and it's funny because, you know, we want that to be the case when people are coming for the paranormal tours. Like, we want mm -hmm. them to want to absorb all the history, history, but then it's weird because when they come for the history tour, you're going to be like, hold on, the paranormal is something different, you know? But that's because it's the, the, the history has to be integrated with the hauntings, but you don't necessarily have to integrate the hauntings with the history. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because not everybody's ready for that. No. I think... Um when I started really digging my heels in and when the town of Middleborough uh, had me put in my resume and they interviewed me after the lady left that invited me to come, she went a different path. Um, I thought to myself, this is, this is really a time to kind of change the way communities see the paranormal. I know for a fact, uh, and I've felt it, many teams feel it all the time, there's always a door shut in your face really quick. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this wonderfully historic building that has so much to tell and share and help it thrive and, you know, do restoration work and, and really spring it back into people's attention span and make them want to come there and visit it and be a part of it. But oftentimes it's, it's like taboo. And I, some of that can be because you you see on the internet what I, I sometimes refer to them as the yahoos. <laughs> you know, it's the people out there just kind of giving the field a bad name altogether. And I was like, we're not really focusing on the right thing. You shouldn't focus really on how many video hits am I going to get. You need to focus on a project and put your energy and passion into that. And then have the community, like Middleborough, for instance, has shifted that that hatred for it, where it was 50-50 divide, we actually did a statistical study on it, and it wasn't that anymore. It's now more, it was like 70 and 30. So 70 in favor, where before there wasn't as many in favor. 
And now that they see that it's really not this terrible, awful thing and it helps support the house, it doesn't take any way, anything away from the community as a whole, um, everybody's kind of like teetering and starting to really accept it in the community. Um, the Board of Selectmen, you know, has been really wonderful uh, working with us as well. So, but it is a hard process to go through to get there. What I would like to do is is try to do this everywhere that we try to go and, and not just make it exclusively to the immediate Massachusetts areas, but kind of venture out into different spots. And it's a formula. <laughs> I, I, I put everything down, write everything down, and you shift it and you tweak it and you change it and you watch your chores till you get them just right. So when a person comes in for a public ghost tour, for instance, they're gonna walk in, you're gonna show them a little bit, you know, of your case file, you know, to give them a taste of what has been done there. You're not gonna promise it's gonna happen for them, but these things do happen. And uh, you're gonna give them a snippet of some history. You're gonna take them through this beautiful location. And then you're gonna let them try it on their own. Let them feel it out for their own. Once they get the layout down, go around with them, you know, interact with them and just allow them to kind of feel their way about what investigation is about. And I, it's just, I just laugh, laugh, laugh and just love, love, love what we do because it's watching not only whole townships transfer their, you know, change their opinion of things, but it's also watching someone who comes in the door that was drugged there on a tour because their friend didn't want to go by themselves and you can tell them when they walk in to the last person that leaves because they're fascinated by it. Well, and, and you talk, I was, I was going to say, you talked about, you know, quite a while ago, putting together, you know, taking this blueprint and applying it to other places, but it always kind of mm -hmm. felt like, I think you, this is just me speculating and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but it always kind of felt like you, you didn't feel that the Oliver State was necessarily at a place yet where you could do that. But it seems like um, over the past year or so, you've really kind of gotten into a place where you feel mm -hmm. like you can put some attention now on other places because you have mm -hmm. created this great model that is now self-sustaining for the Oliver estate to keep allowing this to, to go forward in the future. You're not fighting tooth and nail to keep, you know, paranormal investigations happening there. No, no, not fighting tooth and nail at all. Uh, in fact, they, uh, got a little worried <laughs> when I announced to them that I was going to go look at some more location. And as soon as they found out that, I was going to start helping the Emory Estate in Weymouth uh, with the same program, you know, and do the same formula that worked there at the Oliver Estate. Um, they said to me, you're not going to leave us, are you? Don't leave us. And I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to leave the Oliver Estate. That I put, and I want to continue to see that thrive and keep evolving and growing. But as time goes on, I can also mentor people to also be there more with the Oliver State while I venture out and take on other places as well. So last year I had this idea about forming this, it's a, it's a group, but it's, it's, we're not, I don't know, I haven't quite defined it yet, of people who run 
locations who do all the 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 political the paperwork all of the stuff that they go through to make sure that these are managed to specific uh requirements and that's a whole nother story you come for a fun event but you don't say any of that part of it and we don't ever want you to you know we want you to feel comfortable when you walk in the door but there's a lot of work and um so i contacted and reached out to several people uh, at various popular haunted venues that are well known today and kind of talked through it with them and i said do you want to kind of team up and we can kind of help each other here uh your group of volunteers you know we can kind of bounce them around from place to place and kind of spread them out so the volunteers also don't get burnt out on one location and get to explore other places and they get to meet and intermingle with each other and exchange ideas and to me you know it's learning from each other learning from the location yeah more or less but i i just i'm super excited about it because i've got a nice little group already started of um managers and you know project uh people at specific locations and it's growing i i had a conversation on the phone uh with someone out in los angeles and i she mentioned something about another state altogether and she says you were the first person i thought of and i thought oh boy i get to branch out like i always wanted to do now (laughs) and take this take this formula on the road now it is a formula I will say that, and, and we tried this um, at another location. It was further north. It was, uh, I don't want to say it. We tried it, and um, and we would make the trip all the way up and do the events, and they were selling out. You know, they post the tickets. They would sell them out. And then I, I, I told the um, manager there and the historical society, we can't continue to travel this far, so this is what we need to do. We need to get you an equipment list so you have your tools available for your your people who purchase your tickets, and we need volunteers. And I'll keep tracking up for a little while and train them on some stuff. But then I'm going to kind of back away, and then you should be good. Uh, it, it didn't last that long. After we got them going, they kind of fizzled out, and these events stopped happening. So there's a formula. But with that, there's another level and layer, and it's called uh, personality. Right. You, ha- you have to have people uh, that are volunteering that people just enjoy being around. You know, and that, to me, sometimes sells just as much as the venue and the excitement of a ghost hunt. It's just coming out and hanging out with some really cool, down-to-earth people. Yeah, I mean, it's, so, it's it's a learning experience for a lot of people, so they need somebody there that can teach them. Yeah, and, and I've, I've also watched happen over time that people who we call the repeat offenders that come back time and time and time again, they tend to partner up with their favorite volunteers that they really started to relate to. And it, it, it's just a beautiful thing to, you know, stand back and watch happen. So, but, <clears throat> go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, let, let's let's shift over, though, to this to the Emory estate. I mean, I'm looking up some stuff here online as we're talking, and, you know, it's a similar situation where the town owns this property? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And yes, I'm, it is. I'm looking at this story here. So they bought it in 2011. Mm-hmm. What have they been doing with it in, in, the, in the 10 years that they've owned it now? 
absolutely nothing. Wow. Uh, yeah, they paid $1.9 million for the house, which is 5,116 square feet, three floors, a full basement, and then it's got a, a cupola on the top to where you can walk up a, a thin staircase and go look out over the Boston Harbor and see the skyline. Um, a tremendous history, of course, that's there. It, it goes even before the house was built. It's an exact replica of Mount of George Washington's Mount Vernon. Um, absolutely gorgeous, and it, it, it captured my heartstrings too because when I was contacted by Weymouth, they was like, uh, we'd like you to do what you're doing there. We'd like you to come here because they don't know what to do with the house. And I said, okay, I, I'll, I was looking at it. I saw the picture online. I said, this is fascinating. You know, you can kind of pick up a vibe from it, but I was like, it could just be a house. It could just be a big house. Um, maybe nothing going on. And I told them uh, from the start when I was talking to them, if nothing's going on there, I can't honestly sell a vent if nothing could happen to people, you know, or if it's not safe. If it's something bad in there that I can't safely bring people through on a ghost tour, I'm, I'm going to have to probably pass on that. But it's not what I found. Um, I did a daytime walkthrough with three people from Weymouth. From, I had to meet them at Town Hall. We drove over. And standing outside the car, and, and it's to the back of the building is where we went in, uh, you could just feel the energy coming off of that house and it was sort of nervous then you know like what, what's going on here a little bit and then when they unlocked the door and i stepped through i was like this is going to be an interesting afternoon and it was maybe an hour and a half when i was in there and i got two class a evps on my my phone which i kept on record the whole time as i did the walkthrough um it was just intense, and I, I just felt like the whole house was alive. It, it really is. It really is alive. We've actually, uh, we did a preliminary investigation where I pulled together different people from different teams because I also don't, I didn't want to make the mistake of this. It's going in and getting excited about it, and then there not really be anything there. It was just kind of my excitement that was blowing it up. So it was important to have kind of like objective, you know, evaluation of it and having different teams with different uh, tactics and uh, skills would help. And every team, uh, we met up there, a small group of people and kind of split up and did our thing. And from the word go, that's the thing. They said it didn't, it didn't have to get dark outside. As soon as we stepped inside, things just started. And it was just an impressive first evaluation of it. So I'm excited about doing the public investigations coming up in March. Our first ones are sold out. So. Yeah, so talk to us just a little bit about the process of people being able to try and, you know, get on a waiting list or find out information about when there's, uh, when there's mm -hmm. going to be events happening. Mm -hmm. So um, I, with all the different locations, I had to come up with kind of a, a schedule. Uh, because I, I want to remain working with the Oliver House, doing as much as I can there, too, with ticketed events. I decided to go ahead and keep Oliver House ticketed events the first Saturday 
every month throughout the year. And then we'll take a, a two-month break, usually at the beginning, like January and February of the year. Um, for the Emory Estate, we're going to kick the first series of events off in uh, March, and that's the second Saturday each month all the way through the rest of the year. And as far as private investigations, if teams want to come in, I've been working with the facility manager there and uh, the mayor's office because they're going to start um, looking for volunteers that are right in the area that works with the town to be able to open it up for more dates for private investigations uh, by having somebody there in Weymouth that can open up the building and get the people in, get the waiver signed, and let the teams do what they can do. I'm, I'm super excited. As far as booking investigations, we have to just nail down when they're ready to flip on the switch uh, with the town volunteers and stuff to do that. Uh, as far as the ticketed events, um, that's where, you know, the volunteers I have and the other locations, that's where those come into play because we're able to kind of like have a schedule and trade up. If somebody's not going to be there and we might need an extra hand, we can reach out and somebody else can come on and help out. So yeah, it's going to work out. I think. The Emory Estate is going to be phenomenal. We did uh, one show <laughs> there. Um, it was called uh, Scared and uh, Alone. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but um, that's where we actually put uh, a woman in the house, and she was in there all by herself with no one else in the Emory house with her. Um, it absolutely rocked her world to be in there alone, and we were able to watch it on camera, and you can see it on YouTube, I think, um, where you can actually hear the heartbeat of the house. Wow. Mm. We recorded the heartbeat during our investigation, preliminary investigation. We have video footage. I still have it um, on my computer, and I've watched it over and over, and I'm trying to figure out why does it sound so much like a human heartbeat? We heard what sounded like a crash, but that's not what the video cameras picked up. The video cameras picked up the sound of a human heartbeat, and it happened during the live stream filming of that show, as well and it went on and it went on and it went on for a long time so yeah the house is going to be really really an exciting place for people to explore just keep your eyes peeled, you know peeled on it um and uh we'll be getting some messages out there on social media about when we're going to open and i'm hoping to get a website started as well uh, for saving locations to where we can tag the different places that we're going to start going that are new for people to explore, uh, and they can look at the calendar of events and open dates, uh, the pricing for it. And keep in mind, with the pricing, 100% of all the money goes to the location, not to any of us. And, and we're not talking about exorbitant prices either. I know. I mean, I know that mm -mm. at the Oliver Estate, you've always been able to keep those, those ticketed events very affordable for people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, since, since I've started at the Oliver Estate, I know we've done, I think we calculated it was well over $85,000 um, in five years. Wow. That's to amazing. Take care Impressive. of the house. We kept the prices uh, as low as we could. And the Emory Estate is so large 
and it's really going to be an extremely fun and interactive uh, place for people to investigate uh, with the energies there. Um, and that one was a tough one to kind of price. I didn't want to go overboard with it because you want it to be somewhat affordable, but it is a lot larger than the Oliver Estate. Um, you know, square footage wise, it sits on 24 acres. There's another building altogether. There's history with the land there. It's, it's just amazing. So, uh, those prices I think are very reasonable too. And the reason I wanted to make sure that they were that way is to, you know, get people, get teams in there. You want them to be able to afford it. Um, but you also want to make a real impact that's helping that location right away. Mm-hmm. So the first few months, uh, I told them I said, just sit back and watch and see what happens. It was funny because one of the town people told me, yeah, the mayor, he said, well, good luck with that. You know, he was like, I don't, I don't mind what you do. Just, you know, you got, we got to do something. We're not doing anything and it's just going downhill, you know, so it's, it's going to, we're going to turn a corner with that. We're going to show them again how the paranormal field can really be a positive influence on these historic sites. Yep. And it's the best grassroots marketing for something historic too, because mm-hmm. all these groups are going to start talking about whatever they get when they go there and that's going to just make people take a deeper dive into the history of the location so it it really helps spread that word Uh, but then i have to ask because i mentioned at the top of the show that there's been seems like there's been a lot of activity going on lately at the oliver estate uh there's you know there's (laughs) a video that you caught the day after i was there and then you posted up a couple other videos the other day Do do you think that that house is maybe um acting up a little bit because the spirits there are upset that you know you're you're also doing this somewhere else, or do you think that they, you know, they understand and they, they appreciate what you've done for them, and they want to see you do that for some some other spirits and some other locations? You know, uh, I, I don't think they're acting up more. I think they've always kind of acted that way. You know, I, I kind of, I know I look like a, a weirdo when I go there sometimes on those security cameras because I just talk out loud to them, uh, to the people there, and just kind of explain things. I don't keep secrets from them. I'm like, I'm not going to leave, you know, because I love you. You're my family here. I I will always consider you that, and I will always, always, always protect you and do everything I can for you. But there are other places as well that need help, and I need to do that too. But I won't give up on you, so please understand that. And I feel like they do. They understand. Um. The intensity of the activity at the Oliver House lately, I, I don't, I, it, it, it's always been there. I think the difference is, is we haven't always had cameras on it. Sure. And having a location that is as alive and active and, and uh, intelligent with people, it doesn't mean that you have to have people in there activity to happen and we know this you know there's no secret about that that's common sense right so i was like why don't we just put these cameras ever i want to put more and i'm i I actually talked to uh weymouth i said i want to go and buy a bunch of cameras and put them throughout the the house and monitor it on the inside for a while and uh they was like whatever you want to do we're good and i was like perfect so I'm going to do that. Um, 
hopefully I can get those cameras up and going in the next month and a half and cover all the floors in the basement because the Wi-Fi signal inside the Emory Estate is phenomenal. You don't lose signal at all. Hmm. Any of the floors. It's, we got a booster in there. All of our house, we have a challenge because we haven't put a booster in there yet for the Wi-Fi. So we only have X amount. Of, uh, we've mapped it out. We've only got this amount of space where we won't lose signal. But it, it doesn't take much because the cameras that we've got in that small set of space is like phenomenal. We catch, um, I mean, for instance, after your visit, Tim, we caught the security bar coming out of the door with nobody in the house. Mm -hmm. And people can see that at, at WBSM.com. I wrote an article about it. Uh, just because, it, you know, I, I was trying to express everybody just how hard it is to get that door, uh, you know, mm -hmm. to get that bar out of that door. Mm -hmm. It is. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it, it just floored me because that is, with these cameras, you're able to set up these motion alerts and sound alerts. And you can also set them up to detect people and pets and, you know, all kinds of other things. But we just do motion and sound. And with that, we're able to capture uh, a sound, and then it sounds like talking uh, and different voices that's coming through. Uh, some very loud, just like they're standing right next to the camera. I think it's always been going on. It's just we weren't we weren't always present 100 percent of the time with the cameras. And, and now we are, and we've got lots of people watching them. You know, we're all linked in. The volunteers are all linked into those cameras so we can uh, tune into the house at any given time and just kind of listen to the house. And that helps us connect even more with it and, and understand it. Just a warning to everybody else out there that's not, you know, that's kind of dumb about things like I am. Those cameras move on their own. <laughs> so don't freak out when you see it happen like I did. Or like they what did. happened at Lizzie's when you were No, there. those cameras didn't move on their own. So when that camera moved, that was that was paranormal activity. These cameras <laughs> that they've put into the Oliver oh, State actually they they will okay. move and focus in on things. So it moved and I freaked out. Well because <laughs> I was in the room yeah. by myself and I didn't know what was gonna happen. And it makes a little bit of a sound like rink rink, like at like little okay. like mechanism sound that freaks you out, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> no, not the paranormal move on their own. All right. They, no, 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 operational the, move on their own. Got it. Hey, hey Christy, I, I'm willing yeah. to help you out any way I can. If you can't, if you can use my help, I'd be happy to help. I would love to have you. I would absolutely love to have you on board. I'm, I will talk to just about anybody that is looking forward to try to volunteer and kind of what I find is there's kind of a mix. You've got You've got investigators that's been doing this for a while. You know, they've got the experience and background under their under their belt. You know, they understand the equipment and stuff. And then I find people that just love it so much, you know, and they want to. They want to get into it. I think that goes back to our first conversation, Tim, doesn't it? I was Absolutely. like, how do I join a team when I first came up here? Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, that's going to be really tough. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, all right. <laughs> And you say, maybe you should just start your own. Yeah. And I yeah. thought, you know what? And and I think when that happened, Tim, honestly, that kind of made me start thinking about there's really nothing you can't accomplish. If you just keep your head on your shoulders and try to think it through, study it, tweak it, 
and get it to the point where it works. Well, we've got only got about a minute left. Uh, if people do want to volunteer, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, you can email me at um, Oliver House, all one word, Christy, that's all one word, Oliver House Christy at gmail.com. K R C. It's a C H R I S T Y. And if anybody needs that, you can just reach out to me too, uh, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com, and I will forward on your info to Christy. I mean, thank you so much for joining us and sharing this with us. I look forward to doing another episode a little bit later on this year where we can talk about some of the stuff that you're actually getting out of the yeah. Emory Estate too. Well, I, I really think you guys, you and Matt, ought to come to the Emory Estate and walk through there with me one day. Oh, absolutely. And, Same and get your own impression. I uh, win. You know, hey. hey <laughs> mind if I drag I Andy mean, Lake I with mean, me? I got to get him out of the house. right now. <laughs> well, no, I think just during the day, it's just a pleasure to be there. All right, well, the nighttime. We'll definitely touch base. And then in the final 30 seconds here we have, just want to pass on that Glenny, who is your biggest fan from when you did the, the live episode of Midnight Society from the Oliver Estate, said, uh, wanted me to say hi to Dolly Parton. So <laughs> there you Jolene, go. Jolene, Jolene. <laughs> oh, we got her to say. That's <laughs> all right. All right. Thank you so much, Christy. We'll talk soon. All right. Bye Take bye. Care. Bye. That is Christy Parrish. Exciting news about the Emory Estate. Can't wait to get over there and check it out. And, of course, we'll report back to all of you when we get a chance to do that. But we're out of time for tonight. Uh, we have run out of show, but we'll be back next week working on a special guest who's hopefully going to be joining us in the spooky studio. Uh, just waiting for confirmation on that. But we'll be back then. Until then, everybody out there, stay spooktacular. <laughs>